Guys, good to see all of you out tonight. We're about halfway through our fall deal. Can you believe that? It's amazing how fast this, uh, it's, all, it's all going by. About eight, nine weeks, we'll be at Christmas. Unbelievable. It's moving on us. It really is. Well, let's uh, ask the Lord to make this time uh, meaningful for us tonight, shall we? Father, we uh, pause here to ask that you would uh, instruct us. Now, you have uh, uh, promised to do that. And we, we would simply... Um, we would simply take advantage of that promise. In Psalm 32, you said that uh, to David, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will instruct you with my eye upon you. And Lord, there are some of us here that really need some wisdom for some decisions that are right, uh, right on our desk. We need uh, to know how to navigate a situation. And quite frankly, it's beyond us and we've been puzzled and we've been confused. So we hold that verse up and thank you that you have promised at the right moment and, and, and not before to give us exactly what we need. For some guys, it'll be guidance. That's what they need. Others tonight need encouragement. Uh, Lord, others, um, others just need to be reminded that you have not forgotten about them. Uh, we always come into this study on Wednesday night from different places and different situations. Some of us have had really good days. Uh, others of us are really glad um, we walked out of the office and we closed it up because it wasn't going real well today. Uh, we're, we're, we're all dealing with stuff because life is just full of stuff. We thank you that we're not going through life by ourselves, but that we come to you and you do lead us and you instruct us and you walk ahead of us. Um, we thank you for your presence, and we thank you for your word. We're at different places in life chronologically. Some of us are young. Some of us are in our 20s and our 30s. Others of us have hit the mid-mark. We're, we're hovering around 40, and now we're pushing 50, and some of us are in our 60s and our 70s and 80s, and... Lord, what we all have in common, no matter where we are on the calendar of life, is that uh, we need the one who invented life, and we need the one who invented time. So we come to you, and we come to you, Lord, asking that you would do something fresh, that you would give us grace tonight. Uh, we can't live on the grace of last week, although we're extremely grateful for it. We need fresh grace tonight. And then when we get up in the morning, we'll need it all over again. Thank you, Lord, that that supply never runs out. Thank you that it's like Niagara. It just keeps coming. It just keeps rolling. And uh, we count on that and we live off that. Now open our eyes tonight that we may behold wonderful things from thy law. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Was it 15 or 20 years ago that there were two TV programs that ran at about the same time? Uh, they both had sort of the same theme and the same motif. 
both programs were about uh, families and uh, their lives and their businesses. Uh, one was based in uh, Colorado, and the other program was based in Texas. So the one program was called Dallas, and you probably remember uh, that program. Uh, the other program, which was similar in, in plot and in scope and uh, in the general overall sense of, of the series, uh, was not named after a, another city. Uh, the one was called Dallas. The other one was called Dynasty. Uh, and, and quite frankly, neither of those families were real pleasant. A uh, lot of dysfunction, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of dirty laundry, a lot of, lot of dirty business deals going on. Uh, they, they just weren't quite what you want to be. Uh, but those shows were extremely popular. Uh, we are going through a study of the kings. Uh, we're calling this, for lack of a better title, uh, Living Lessons from Dead Kings. And as you study these kings that followed Saul and David and Solomon, after Solomon, you may recall that there are 40 kings, there are 20 in the northern kingdom and 20 in the southern kingdom because after Solomon, the kingdom split in two. The northern kingdom is Israel, the southern kingdom is uh, Judah. Um, and as you back up, and look at the big picture of these kings. Uh, you had some dynasties. You had some families where father was followed by son, and then he was followed by his son, and he was followed by his son. The last few weeks, we have been um, looking at the life of Jehoshaphat, and then we looked at the life of his son, and we looked at the extended family. Well, we can't quite get away from them yet because there's another chapter in the dynasty that um, we would probably associate quickly with Ahab. Yet that dynasty of Ahab really didn't start with Ahab. It started with his father, whose name was Omri. And Omri was a wicked king. But along comes his son Ahab, who outdid his father in wickedness. And if you've been with us, you know about this guy, Ahab and his wife uh, Hiller, uh, uh, Jezebel. You, you know about them. Now, tonight we're in 2 Kings 9. <clears throat> because what's going to happen in 2 Kings 9 is that we're going to see a dynasty that is going to come to an end. Um, Ahab did have an, a dynasty, actually started by his father. But it was a dynasty of, of sin. It was a dynasty of incredible wickedness. Um, not only was he leading the charge, but his wife Jezebel was inciting him and encouraging him. And they were in the north. But because of some bad moves by the king in the south, Jehoshaphat, he aligned himself with Ahab by marriage and arranged for the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel to marry his son. So what happens is this wicked dynasty in the north begins to extend its tentacles 
down into the southern kingdom. And it's going to have repercussions for several generations. Um, these were bad people. These were wicked people. Um, Mary's reading a book right now by Paul Johnson called The Intellectuals. And she's been telling me about it. When she's done with it, I'm going to read it. Paul Johnson is a great historian. Uh, but this book, The Intellectuals, is about, uh, quote-unquote, the intellectuals that in our culture we hold up as the icons of learning. They were the intelligentsia, uh, men like Rousseau, uh, Sartre, uh, uh, Hemingway. There's a whole list of these guys. And, and when you send your kid off to universities, the universities are based on the teachings of these um, scholars and writers who, quote-unquote, are the intellectuals, the enlightened ones. And what Johnson does is he does these short biographies on each of these uh, icons of intellectualism and shows their philosophy, but then he goes into their private lives and shows how they really lived. And the debauchery and the wickedness and the perversion is beyond belief. So you'll send your kid off to college and pay 20 grand a year so that they can become educated uh, under the teachings of these people. That's the American education system. Encouraging, isn't it? There are more fools per square inch on a university campus than anywhere else on the face of the earth. Aren't there? And they've got PhDs, and we call, quote-unquote, they're, they're learned. Well, Romans says, professing to be wise, they became as fools. And, and if you read Romans 1.18 down to the end, it talks about, you see, when people suppress the truth of God, and they do suppress it, they know God's there. And all of these quote-unquote intellectuals, they knew God was there. They knew it. They knew it from observing creation. You see the wonders of the earth. You see the wonders of the universe. There has to be a creator. Has to be. But they don't want to acknowledge that creator, so they stuff down the truth. Uh, the second reason they know God is there, Romans 1 says, is that God has written the truth of himself on their hearts. You see. Uh, Johnson also points out that uh, these intellectuals have become the high priest of our culture. They have replaced, see, before we had, uh, we had scholars and we had teachers that believed in God, and the great scientists believed in God. Uh, uh, men like Newton, they knew God was there. They, they knew that by studying science, they were studying the very signature of God. I can't remember if I said this last week, but uh, when we were in England this summer, I, uh, we, uh, on one day, we went to Churchill's home, Chartwell, down in Kent. Man, that was great. That was really, that was fun. Um, we spent a lot of time there. And then the sun was starting to go down, and I, was, and, I, and I was trying to hustle to get up about an hour away to Charles Darwin's home because I wanted to see it. I just wanted to, I just wanted to see it because Darwin had this home, and... Uh, uh, he had these gardens, and that's where he would walk, and he would sort out all the stuff that, you know, all his theories and all this. And You know, Darwin was an interesting guy because he suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. 
He knew God was there. But uh, he wasn't going to honor God as God. And he was futile in his speculations. You know, evolution is lousy science. You know that, don't you? I mean, it just, it, it just absolutely makes no sense. And, and, and in fact, they used to have a lot of debates going on between creationists and evolutionists, and basically they just quit debating the creationists because they get creamed. Because it, it, it's, it's anti-truth, and it's anti-knowledge, and it's anti-sense. Well, he would work out, you know, all this stuff, and he would walk these gardens. Uh, as, as he wrote his, his uh, theory of evolution and published it, you know what became so interesting about Darwin is that he lost his zest for life. He lost the joy of life. And uh, he really didn't, uh, he, he wrote about his home, his estate, and he said it was neither beautiful nor plain. It was just sort of so-so. Well, actually, it was a, a, a large home, a beautiful home with beautiful gardens. But, you know, when you deny the truth about God, you lose something and you're not able to enjoy life. So first of all, I saw this, and Mary and I, we drove up, and it was already locked, and, you know, but I popped over a fence, and I'm looking at this thing, and, and uh, I said, it's a nice house. But see, the guy couldn't even enjoy his house. You know what else happened to him? He lost his sense of taste. He couldn't taste food. Isn't that interesting? Uh, he couldn't enjoy food anymore because, and people say, well, there's different reasons. You know what I think it was? I think he denied the one who would give him food. And he, I'll tell you what else. He couldn't listen to classical music. You know why he couldn't listen to classical music? Because so many of the great composers would write their music to the glory of God. And he couldn't listen to it. You see? Um, there are always people in power. And uh, we've got politicians in power today, and we've got scholars that are in power. And... Uh, you know, a lot of these guys on university campuses are fools, and they can't hold down a real job. So they devised a welfare system for them called tenure. <laughs> now, you know that, don't you? Because they can't hold real jobs. A lot of them haven't had real jobs. You say, you're anti-intellectualist. I'm anti-fool, is what I am. So we set up a system uh, to subsidize them, and they have their own welfare state, and then they can say anything they want. Nobody can say anything because it's academic freedom. It's academic foolishness is what it is, you see. Uh, what does that have to do with Ahab and Jezebel? I really don't know, but I feel a lot better. <laughs> well, here's what it has is that back in the time of Israel and Judah, the kings had the power. Now, we've just moved the power around. But uh, the spirit of Ahab and Jezebel and Omri and these godless kings is alive and well in our culture and the educational system today. Uh, and with guys like Darwin, you see. They had a dynasty back then, a dynasty of wickedness and debauchery and idolatry, and they were murderers, and they were sexual perverts. Uh, that's who was leading uh, the nation of Israel in the northern kingdom. Um, quite frankly, what was going on as they extended their tentacles through marriage down to the southern kingdom, and then the next generation, and the next generation was influenced, as we're going to see here in 2 Kings uh, uh, 9, uh, an epidemic began to develop. Uh, an epidemic of sin and wickedness, and the epidemic had to be dealt with. 
been reading this book called The Tipping Point. Uh, it's average. It, it's so-so. But the first chapter is pretty good. And what this guy does in this book is that he looks at trends and he looks at fads. In your lifetime, there have been a lot of fads, haven't there? How many of you guys remember hush puppies? You young guys don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the kind you eat. I'm talking about the shoes you wear. Remember when hush puppies? Anybody in this room tonight have on a pair of hush puppies? You do. Uh huh. We're glad you're here. And we saw your 53 Studebaker parked out front. You see? Did they really? Yeah. Yeah, they screwed it up. But hey, hush puppies, all the, hey, when was that? Back in the late 50s, early 60s? Everybody was wearing hush puppies. And they had that little basset hound, as, you see? But it's some other fat. Uh, all of a sudden, everybody's doing hula hoops. Everybody's doing, uh, who's that purple? Barney. Uh, that's a recent one, you know. But every year, there's some hot, we're coming up on Christmas, there's going to be some hot, trendy toy that everybody's, remember Cabbage Patch Dolls? Ugliest suckers in the world. People were, people were giving their inheritance away uh, for a Cabbage Patch doll. They were doing an Esau. They were giving, you know, they would give their inheritance for a bowl of pottage for, because they couldn't get one. Their kid had to have one. And, and this guy talks about trends, and he says what they are, these fads are like epidemics. Listen to what he says. He talks about the, the three um, characteristics of epidemics or fads or trends. He says these three characteristics, one, contagiousness, two, the fact that little causes can have big effects, and three, that change happens not gradually but at one dramatic moment, are the same three principles that define how measles move through a grade school classroom or the flu attacks every winter. Of the three, the third trait, the idea that epidemics can rise or fall in one dramatic moment, is the most important because it is the principle that makes sense of the first two and that permits the greatest insight into why modern change happens the way it does. The name given to that one dramatic moment in an epidemic when everything can change all at once is called the tipping point. There was a tipping point in the life of uh, Israel in the north but more importantly, in the life of uh, Judah in the south. And if you've been with us, I think the tipping point was when Jehoshaphat made the alliance with Ahab in the north. Everything changed, and the epidemic began to spread. 2 Kings 9. All right? Now, Elisha the prophet. So, wait a minute. What do you mean, Elisha? Last time we talked about Elijah. Yeah, but Elijah's passed off the scene now. Okay? Uh, he was taken up to heaven. Elisha didn't die. He was taken up into heaven. Chariot, fire, horses, the whole thing. His uh, protege was Elisha. And Elisha asked that a double portion of his spirit. And he says, if you see me caught up in the heavens, God will, you, you, you've been given what you ask. And that's exactly what happened to Elisha. Now, Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets because there was a school of prophets. Do you remember that? They had a seminary. Uh, Elijah did. And Elisha, and they had these prophets in training. So he called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins. Isn't that a great phrase? I mean, it just so picturesque, you know? Gird, did you gird up your loins today? If you did, I hope you did it privately. But it's a good phrase. Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead, 
When you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Now, not the son of Jehoshaphat who was the king. This is another Jehoshaphat. Okay? And go in and bid him from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room. Let me tell you what's going to happen here. We are going to be introduced to the guy who is going to become uh, the next king who has a specific mission. This guy's name is Jehu. He is going to be the guy chosen by God to be the new king in the northern kingdom who is going to bring to an end the epidemic of the Ahab-Omri dynasty of wickedness. There is an epidemic that is out of control, and it has to be stopped, and it has to be eradicated. So God picks this guy, Jehu, who's an army commander. Elisha gets a prophet, he says, you get some oil, and you run up and you meet this guy. Verse 2, go in, bid him arise from among his brothers and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and, says, and say, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. Now why would that be? Because this was a bold, brazen act. This guy in anointing uh, Jehu as the next king. See, Jezebel is still around. And Je Jezebel was a murderess. And as soon as she found out about this, she was going to come after this guy as she went after Elijah. You see. Uh, by the way, for your outline, verses 1 to 13 is the anointing of Jehu. That's how I've got it laid out here. Verse 4, So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting around, and he said, I have a word for you, O captain. Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, O captain. And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And, and now here's, your, here's this guy's assignment. And you shall strike the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. See, that's the Jeroboam who was the first king of the northern kingdom. And like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, which was where their winter palace was, and none shall bury her. We'll see that in a minute, how that was fulfilled. Then he opened the door and fled. This guy said, Adios, I'm out of here. Because he just put his life on the line by doing this. Now, the other guy, so this guy's just been anointed. I mean, he thinks this guy's maybe got a, a FedEx for him or something, you see? So they go in the house, all of a sudden he's the next king of Israel and he's got an assignment from God. So then he goes outside and all the other captains are sitting around, you know, they're drinking a few brewskis and having, you know, some cigars, and they want to know what happened. Jehu came out to the servants, verse 11, uh, of his master, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? Why would they think he's mad? Because he runs in and he runs out. It's kind of weird behavior. And he said to them, Well, you know very well the man and his talk. He's, he's not going to reveal. And they said, It is a lie. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and thus he said to me, um, yada, yada, yada in the Hebrew. Actually, it's not, but 
it's kind of a colloquialism. Thus he said, thus and thus he said to me, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Now catch this. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. These guys were ready for a change. They'd been prepared in advance by God. There's some work here behind the scenes. We don't get the whole story here, but I'm going to tell you, there was some stuff that a sovereign God was doing to prepare these guys that they put their lives on the line and stood up and said, let's go for it. Let's do it. These guys were warriors. And they were sick and tired of godlessness at the highest level. So, he's anointed. Now, what's his job? It's to avenge the justice of God on the family and the dynasty of Ahab. Which begins in verse 14. You have now the avenging of Joram. Now, who is Joram? Joram is now the king of the north. You see? He's the latest in the line. After Ahab, you had his son um, Ahaziah, and he only ruled two years, and then Joram came on the scene. He reigned 12 years. Joram is on the scene right now. But now, you're going to see the avenging and the killing of Joram. Now, I'll tell you what, guys, this stuff gets pretty bloody. And it kind of violates our senses. I like what Tom Constable says. Tom says this. He says, Elijah and Elisha were God's instruments to warn Ahab and many of his relatives of the consequences of apostasy. Now, this is going to get real severe and real bloody. But it didn't have to get to this point. Through the prophets, every king had a prophet. And when a king would get off track, God would send the prophet to rebuke them and to admonish them because they'd gotten off the path of righteousness. We do that in our lives. Here's the path that Christ wants me to walk. And what will happen sometimes, we decide to take the wrong off-ramp. We decide to go our own, our own way. We decide that we, you know, we're, I'm, I'm going to do it my way. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I know what God says, but you know, on this deal right here, I'm, I'm going to... Well, you see, we get ourselves in trouble. What did Isaiah say? All of us like sheep have gone, what? Astray, we've turned each one to his own way. That happens. And when that happens, God will often send someone to you who loves you, who will say to you, you know, that's not the way you want to go. That's happened to you, it's happened to me. And I desperately need for God to do that in my life. Because we can get deceived and we can con ourselves, can't we? And we can talk ourselves into things that we shouldn't be doing. So God will often send someone who loves us to speak with us. The question is, how will I respond? Uh, the prophets were sent to Ahab and to his family time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. But he would not listen. It never had to get to this point if he had responded. Um, but it got to this point. Verse 14. So now Jehu is on a mission. And quite frankly, he is on a mission for God. There's, there's absolutely uh, no question about it. So verses 14 to 26, you've got the avenging of Joram. All right? J-O-R-A-M. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. 
Now Joram, with all Israel, was defending Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. Okay? So they had this thing going on with this uh, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Aram. So this guy got wounded in battle. He goes back to Jezreel. Jezreel was the winter palace. Jezreel was the Palm Springs. Jezreel was the uh, Scottsdale. They had a lot of golf courses, real nice. You can drive through Jezreel today. Uh, and you don't even know you're there. Because it's just nothing. Unbelievable palace, luxury, nothing there. You just drive by and the guy will say, oh, by this is Jezreel. You, where? Because there's nothing. There's not even a gas station there. It's just dirt. This is where this guy was hanging out. It wasn't dirt back then. Um, so this guy is healing up from his wounds, you know. He, he's he's kind of getting repaired here. He's in the jacuzzi a lot. He's in rehab. He's doing a lot of stuff. Physical therapy. So Jehu said, if this, is, if this is your mind, then let no one escape or leave the city and go tell it in Jezreel. Then Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was lying there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah. Okay? Now, so Joram's king of the north. Ahaziah is the king of the south, Judah. Now, who is Ahaziah? Well, there was another Ahaziah who was the king of the north who was not this guy. Okay? That Ahaziah was his uncle. Now, this Ahaziah in the south, who is this guy? Well, this Ahaziah in the south, his father was Jehoram, and his mother was the daughter of Ahab and who? Jezebel. So he, this king of Judah, sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem, is Ahab and Jezebel's grandson. So he's up here hanging with his relative in Jezreel. That's what he's doing up there. They're kind of having a get-together, and, you know, they're having a good time. Do, do you see the dynasty and how it's extended? Okay. So these two guys, these two kings, king of the south, king of the north, they're hanging out in Jezreel. 17. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel. He saw the company of Jehu as he came. And he says, I see a company. Jerome said, take a horseman and send him out to meet him and let, it, let him say, is it peace? So the horseman went out to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. And the watchman reported, the messenger came to them, but he did not return. In other words, basically, um, what Jehu says is, hey, you want to live, get behind me. What do you know about peace? So the guy falls in line. 19, they sent out a second horseman. Comes to them, that says to the king, is it peace? Jehu answered, what do you have to do with peace? Turn behind me. The watchman reported, he came even to them and he did not return. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously, or he drives madly. You know what's interesting? This has the same Hebrew root as the word that's used in verse 11 about the, about the prophet who came to anoint Jehu as king in the first place. And then the other captain says, why did this mad fellow come to you? Same root. Uh, why did they say the guy was mad? Because he furiously came in and he furiously came out, just as Jehu was driving furiously to Jezreel. Jehu had a mission. 
Jehu was going to go eradicate Baal worship and the influence of Ahab once and for all um, out of Israel. Uh, 21. Then Joram said, get ready. He figured out what was happening. And they made his chariot ready, and Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the pro this is wild, and found him in the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now you remember Naboth, don't you? Okay. Naboth had a vineyard right next to the Winter Palace, beautiful vineyard that Ahab tried to make a deal with him. He wouldn't sell it, it was his family possession. So Ahab gets upset. He's pouting in the bedroom. Jezebel comes in. What's the matter? Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. She says, I'll get you the vineyard. She gets this mock trial set up. And before you know it, Naboth is stoned. He's killed. And now he's got the vineyard of Naboth. So Jehu is waiting at the vineyard of Naboth. I love that. Don't you? Bible says, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Yes, he will. Maybe not on the time frame we'd like to see him, but there is something called the justice of God that will be exacted at the appropriate time. Now, 22. And it came about when Joram saw Jehu. Uh, I just lost my place, to be real honest with you. 22. And it came about when Joram saw Jehu, that he said, is it peace, Jehu? These guys are into peace. And he answered, what peace, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many? Now you get another glimpse into, in, into Jezebel. Remember we said last week she was sold out? She was sold out to Satan. She was a murderer. She had Naboth murdered. Uh, she was also into sorcery and witchcraft and astrology and all this. She was anti-God anti-truth, anti-prophets, a wicked, wicked woman. As J. Brennan McGee said, a masculine, wicked woman of whom no one has done more evil than her. 23, Joram figures out this isn't a peace mission. 23, Joram reigned about and fled and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength, shot Joram between his arms, and the arrow went through his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, Take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab's father that the Lord laid this oracle against him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth, now catch this, and the blood of his sons. We find out from this verse something we didn't know before. Not only did um, Jezebel have Naboth killed, she had his sons massacred as well. Do you see that? The blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. You know, you've got to be careful, guys about getting emotionally infatuated with real estate. Right? You understand what I'm saying? Because, you see, a lot of guys have gone down over real estate. A lot of guys have gone down over a house or a ranch or a farm because you want it so badly. Maybe you won't murder, but you'll sacrifice integrity or 
you won't tell the truth, or it's just not worth it. This all had to do with a piece of real estate. Okay, now, now we've got the avenging. So we got one guy taken care of, which is Joram. Now it's going to be the avenging of Ahaziah, verses 27 to 29. You guys still with me? Are you? Yeah. We're going to read through some stuff, and then we're going to draw some principles. Um, 27 and 29 now is the avenging of Ahaziah. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot. So they did. Um, now they're going after Jezebel. They're going after the queen mother. Verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. She knows what's coming. This guy's, this guy's coming to get her, and so what does she do? She gets out her, her makeup and makes sure that her appearance is just the way that it should be. 31, as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? She is referring to another guy in the... I won't go into all this but in the history, who also um, went after a king and Zimri. Anyway, I don't have time because I'm running out of time. You can look that up uh, on your own in a consort. Just, just check out Zimri, if you would. 32, then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who was on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him. These were eunuchs that attended her. Uh, they were with her. He looks up at these guys and says, who's on my side? And they'd heard what has happened, and these guys weren't dummies. Verse 33, and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. So he drove the chariot back and forth over her. Kind of nasty. But there was a reason for that. And then when he came in, he ate and drank. Well, I don't know if I could do that. But he did it. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And they went to bury her. Catch this. They found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by this servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel, and once again, what property? Probably the exact property once again, this extensive property that Naboth had, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field and the property of Jezreel, so they cannot say, this is Jezebel. Uh, Elijah said how she would die in 1 Kings 21, verse 23. It's pretty wild stuff. Warren Weirdsby got a great comment on this. Wiersbe says this. It is not pleasant to read the events recorded in these chapters, but we need to hear their message. And the message is this. Eventually, sin is judged and God's word is fulfilled. Uh, God had ordained the anointing of Jehu and the end of Ahab's family, and God kept his word. Once again, it didn't have to come to this. But by their own choice, they made their decision. Thomas Brooks made a great statement about sin. We don't talk a lot about sin. We don't hear a lot about sin. Um, 
It's only a handful of churches, the remnant churches, that teach sin because they teach the Bible. Because we live in a day where churches are becoming apostate, you see. Thomas Brooks said, sin is the only thing that God abhors. It brought Christ to the cross. It damned souls. It shuts heaven. It laid the foundations of hell. That's why sin has to be dealt with. And sin spreads, and if unchecked, it reaches epidemic proportions. And that's what had happened at this moment in the history of not one nation, but two nations, and it had to be eradicated and stopped. When historically there have been epidemics, extreme measures are taken to stem the epidemic. We got an epidemic of fire in California right now. They're doing everything they can do to stop those fires because they're absolutely out of control. Uh, that can happen with something like SARS. People in Toronto were wearing masks. They were canceling athletic events. Why? Because extreme measures have to be taken. There was a, an epidemic of wickedness and it had to be dealt with and it had to be eradicated at the core. So you say, man, I'm glad that's over. We're just getting started because there's more work to do. Uh, so in verses 30 to 37, you've got the avenging of Jezebel. Then in chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 17, you have the avenging of Ahab's sons and grandsons. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Now, Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. These would be sons, and they would be grandsons. <clears throat> Basically, what happened, they had guardians... And he basically did what the Assyrians did. He basically said to the guardians, bring me the heads of those grandsons and sons. Because they, now, now the question is, were they innocent? If they were innocent, God would not have judged them. So they all too were involved in the sin and in the degradation, or they wouldn't have come to this end. So what the Assyrians used to do, the Assyrians were a fearful people. They were the terrorists of the day. The Assyrians, whenever they would come in and take a city, they would take the leaders, they would cut off their heads, and then they would pile them in a pyramid at the gate of the city. That's exactly what he does with the sons and the grandsons, verses 1 to 17. He's not done yet. Um, look at verses 12 through 14. Here you have the avenging of the 42 cousins who were all involved in the same sin and wickedness and immorality. Then he rose and departed and went to Samaria. Um, verse 13, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, said, Who are you? They answered, We're the relatives of Ahaziah. We've come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. We're going to have a family reunion. We're going to have a big blowout. He says, Take them alive. So they took them alive, killed them at the pit of Beth Ekid, 42 men. He left none of them. This is tough stuff. But sin has got to be eradicated. You say, Why was this happening? Hey, listen, guys. The Messiah who was going to save the world and go to the cross was going to come through the nation of Israel. Uh, he would be part of the line of David. Well, you've got Ahab's grandson sitting on the throne of David. And God, who is a God of holiness, in order to... Because he's a God of holiness and he's a God of justice, 
This had to be eradicated and stopped so that he wouldn't have to destroy the entire nation because if he destroyed the entire nation, Christ wouldn't come. This was severe stuff. He's not done yet. Verses 18 to 28, the avenging of the Baal worshipers. Verse 18, what this Jehu guy, and I'm going to give you a tip on this Jehu guy because we're coming to the end here. We're going to learn about this guy.
I'm going to tell you in advance. He wasn't zealous for God and his righteousness as much as he was zealous for power and God on his terms. Now, I'm, we're coming to that. Now, what he does is, look at verse 18. Then Jehu gathered all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu, me, will serve him much. So he lies to him. He says, hey, hey, I'm with Baal. I'm all for Baal. And now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers, all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. Now, uh, what he did, he did this by deception. When Elijah took on the prophets of Baal, did he act like he was a Baal worshiper? No. He just laid it out. He said, I'm for Yahweh. You're for Baal. Let's do it. This guy deceives him. And it kind of gives away what was in his heart. So they send all the, they, they call out for the, we're going to have this big Baal deal. We're going to have a big deal at the convention center. And they bring all these guys in. And what happens is they slaughter them. Uh, look at verse 25. Came about as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, he gives his offering to Baal to, to really sucker them. Then Jehu said to the guard and to the royal officers, go in, kill them, let none of them come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the royal officers threw them out and went to the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the sacred pillars of the house of Baal and burned them. They also broke down the sacred pillar of Baal. you got to remember, this stuff was horribly perverted sexual stuff in nature, you see. Just, just perversion beyond belief. Verse 27, uh, they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal, broke down the house of Baal, and made it a latrine to this day. I'm going to tell you something. You don't miss. You don't mess around with God. He will bring you down to utter degradation and humiliation. Baal, this powerful God, they'd piss on him is what they'd do because that's what he was worthy of. It's pretty wild stuff, isn't it? 28, thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. Did this guy have a mission? Yeah. Did he accomplish the mission? Yeah. He sure did. Um, this, this nation, guys, was in unbelievably bad shape. Uh, the wickedness was beyond belief. I, I'll be very honest with you. I think there are a lot of similarities between our day and the day of Ahab and Jezebel in Israel. If you were here when I talked about Baal worship and the hallmark three traits of Baal worship, they're all alive and well right now in our culture. See, we've gotten to a point where in our culture there is no truth. We deny truth. We deny God. Professing to be wise, we become as fools. Um, I've got an article here from a magazine called layman.org uh, or a website. And it's about these homosexuals that are meeting uh, quote-unquote Christian homosexuals. Um, the article says, when arguing for church acceptance of homosexuality, most advocates talk about monogamy, this new bishop in New Hampshire, you know, uh, has a partner, you know, committed to the one partner. So they talk about monogamy, you know. Uh, but others are bolder. I am a strong ally of those in healthy Catch this, polyamorous relationships, declared Deborah Colony. She argued that having multiple sexual partners can be holy. 
Is that not amazing? But it's not surprising, is it? Because there's no stop. Do you see? If it's not eradicated, you see how far. So now you have multiple sexual partners. Oh, that's holy. No, it isn't. It's perverse. Uh, this meeting was funded by different groups, including two groups out of the Presbyterian Church USA. Um, they funded it along with McCormick Theological Seminary, which is no more a theological seminary than Home Depot, you see. So, so what's going on? The same stuff's going on today that was going on back then. Ahab and Jezebel were very, very religious. So we've got all these, we got all these churches, and you've got people in denominations say, we can't, we're going to pull out of this because we can't be a part of this. Because you've got a bishop in New Hampshire who's living in a monogamous homosexual relationship. And they say, we're a church. They're not a church, they're a car wash. They'll baptize anybody who believes anything. You don't have to believe in Christ. You don't have to believe in the Lord of God. You don't have to believe in the blood of Christ. You don't, they, they, they run people through baptismal fonts like you run a suburban through a car wash. They have nothing to do with Christ. They have nothing to do with the Word of God. And it's alive and well in our day. See, this stuff is relevant, gentlemen. It's where we are. So let's talk about Jehu for a minute. I want to make two observations about Jehu, all right? Jehu, uh, first reading, he, he, he did the work, and he did it extremely well, and he was very thorough. He eradicated Baalism out of Israel. But, look at, look at and there's the verse, 28. Thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. Look at verse 29. However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, now who is that? It's the first king of the northern kingdom, which he made Israel sin. From these, Jehu did not depart. Even the golden calves that were at Bethel and they were at Dan. So what does he do? He eradicates Baal worship, but then the two calves, the golden calves, the idol that... Um, um, I'm not clicking. That Jeroboam set up. See, this guy eradicates Baal worship, and then he goes and worships the two golden calves. Something's wrong here. Something doesn't fit. Now, verse 30, And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you've done well in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu, you see the mercy of God? You see the goodness of God? Uh... This guy did what God had assigned me to do, and God blessed him for it, but this guy's heart was not fully the Lord's. Look at the next verse, 31. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. Unbelievable. Let's talk about Jehu. Let me give you two principles. Here's number one. Jehu was quick to judge, but he failed to judge himself. I'll give it to you again, if you're taking notes. Jehu was quick to judge, but he failed to judge himself. Flip over with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. Sermon on the Mount. 
Here's what Jesus had to say about judging. Do not judge, lest you be judged. Now catch this. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Is Christ saying we don't ever judge? He's not saying that. He's saying that by the standard by which you judge someone else is the standard by which you will be judged. Verse 3, And why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Um, Jehu didn't do that. Man, he was swift. He was quick. He drove furiously to Jezreel to judge those two kings and to judge uh, Jezebel. And he was right in what he did in eradicating it. Then he goes on and takes on the, you know, the 70, and he's got the 42 cousins, and he's got all the bail. Man, he cleaned them up. But he never, never judged himself by the same standard. You know what I think? I've been thinking about this guy. I think if Jehu were around today, I think, here's what he might do. I think Jehu might be in talk radio. I do. I think it's possible that Jehu would be a conservative talk show host. I, I really do. Um, I think he'd fit well. Um, Warren Wiersbe, in his little book, says, A nation does not become righteous simply by removing evil. It must also establish godliness. Um, We've got a lot of conservative radio guys. And what they do all day is talk about the left, and they talk about the evil, and they talk about the wrong, and they talk about the hypocrisy, and they say it must be removed. But once you remove it, then what the heck are you going to do? I had, I don't know who, a couple weeks ago, somebody asked me afterwards, hey, you ever listen to this guy, Michael Savage? He is, maybe you've heard him. This guy, his show is called The Savage Nation. Personally, from what I've heard of this guy, I'd put him in this camp. He's real strong on saying, this has got to be changed, this is removed. I mean, he can be brutally harsh. But my question is, so then, Michael, what have you got to replace it? Because if you don't replace it with godliness, then you're, see, all you can offer is just what Jehu did. All you've got is another form of idolatry, you see. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, you see. It's got to be built on biblical principles. If, if you're going to attack them on the left and show their hypocrisy and their immorality and their ungodliness, and it's all there to be seen, and you get rid of them, then what are you going to do? You've got to have an alternative that's got to be a biblical alternative. You know what's fascinating to me about Rush Limbaugh? That if, I, I read his book. I read both his books. One of the things he did, he talked about his father. His father read through the Bible every year. That's what he did. His dad would read that book from, from Genesis to Revelation every year of his life. Um, 
Now, uh, let, let me say this. He's, he's dealing with an issue in his life, and I'm not taking pot shots at him. And, and I think he's right on a lot of things. Uh, I think he's got a biblical worldview. But you've heard him as well as I've heard him, and he'll make uh, these cheap, sarcastic, sexual innuendos. You, you see, there's something missing there. There's something seriously missing because he's living off the capital of the past. But it's got to be reality in your own life. Uh, Jehu had no inner reality of God, so he had no external solution for the nation. See, I think this guy was so blinded, he didn't even see his own sin. It was Thomas Carlyle who said, the deadliest sin of all is to be conscious of none. Say that again. The deadliest sin of all is to be conscious of none. And that can happen. This guy was so quick to eradicate the sin, and then what does he do? He goes and worships the calves. See, the fact of the matter is that Jehu was an instrument of God but Jehu was not a servant of God. And it's possible to be an instrument of God, but not a servant of God. So the question is, why do these men keep coming to power who are not servants of God? Uh, the answer to that is Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 talks about the rulers of every nation God places them. Uh, if you read Isaiah 40. In fact, let's turn over there. Just, just to get a little truth about these rulers. And um, Verse 22 of Isaiah 40. It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number and calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. God chooses who will be the ruler. God, put, God raises them up. God sets them down. You say, well, some of them are wicked. That's right. John Calvin, says when, Calvin said when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. But how blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And what we're going to see in the history of, um, of Judah in the southern kingdom is that we're going to see bad kings bad, then we're going to see a good king. So we're going to get down the road here, and we're going to run into Hezekiah. Then we're going to run into Josiah, who was the greatest of all the kings, who had a heart for God, you see. Uh, God is not shocked by rulers. He uses rulers. He appoints them for his purposes. Evil rulers do not frustrate the plan of God. They cooperate with the plan of God. His truth is marching on no matter who's in power. He's in complete and total charge. There are no hanging chads. 
They might be hanging, but they're hanging by the will of God. Whoever is in there is in there by divine decree. Always. There's never an exception to that. So that was my first observation about Jehu. He was quick to judge, but he failed to judge himself. You got time for one more? All right. Number two. Ahab's dynasty of sin is rooted in his failure to father and spiritually lead his family. Let me back it up one more time. Ahab's dynasty of sin, we could say Ahab slash Omri, his father. Ahab's dynasty of sin is rooted in his failure to father and spiritually lead his family. What was the direction that God gave to the men of Israel? Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.1. Now this is the commandment. I want you guys to get something. This was addressed to the men of Israel. I'm going to prove that to you in just a minute. Okay? Here's what I want you to know. God's called you to lead your family. You. Not your wife. Not grandma. He's called you. God wants men to lead the family. And God wants men to lead the church. We've got some fine women leading families because they had immature men that ran out on them. And God bless them. But God's called men to lead the family. God's called men to lead the church. That's not popular anymore either in evangelical churches. But we'll save that for another day. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. What's the name of this book? Deuteronomy. You know what that means? It means it's Deutero Nomos. Deutero is second. Nomos is law. Deuteronomy is the second law. You say, wait a minute, I didn't know there was a second law. There wasn't a second law in Israel. But he is re... When they came out of Egypt, how long did it take them to go in the promised land? Forty years. It should have taken them four months. But because of the sin of the ten spies, when they had a congregational meeting, which you've got to be careful of, you see, because the majority is often wrong, they swayed the majority of the congregation, got them to vote that we don't trust God to go ahead of us. Because of the sin of the ten spies, they wander for 40 years. Okay? Now, 40 years have gone by. They're getting ready to go into the land. He's speaking to the men of Israel. These guys are 45, 46, 47. When the ten spies swayed the people and Joshua and Caleb tried to get the people to trust God along with Moses, the leaders that he's speaking to now weren't 45, 46, 47. They were 5, 6, and 7. They were little boys. So Deuteronomos is second law. He is restating the original law for a second time 
to a new generation of leaders whose fathers didn't do it right, and now they've got the opportunity to do it right. That's true in your life, and it's true in mine. Some of you guys have a great spiritual heritage. You should thank God for that. Some of you don't. Well, then you start one. You know what? You start your own dynasty that's based on the Word of God and an allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's something we're living for, isn't it? Gosh. Let's do this again. Deuteronomos. I love that term, don't you? It's just got some, got some stuff to it. This is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you might do them in the land which you are going over to possess, so that you and your son and your grandson might, what? Fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fourteen times in Proverbs. He's talking to the men of Israel. And then, look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. For these words I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. See, guys, the Word of God should be on our heart, so that as you're walking through life, and as you walk through life, you walk through life with your son and with your grandson. Because your, your, see, your job is to disciple them. And the key word in discipling, the key word in fathering is the word with. W-I-T-H. You can't disciple them if you're not with them. You can't influence them if you're not with them. So you've got to have time with. Isn't that what Jesus did? Did those guys? If Jesus went to the lake, they went with him. If Jesus went up to the mountain, they went with him. If Jesus went into town, they went with him. And they were always asking him stupid questions. That sounds to me like being a father. Doesn't it sound the same? See, it's with. You got to be with. Because, and see, then as you walk through life and you're with them and, you know, you got grandkids? How many of you guys have grandkids that live close to you? Okay? All right. Get with them. Do stuff with them. So what do I, I don't know, take a little ball game. You know, you, you you, you go into the store, don't go by yourself, take them with you. Because you never know what's going to happen. If they're with you, sometimes you go through life, they're teachable moments. It doesn't say, it doesn't say there in verse uh, 7, and you shall teach them diligently, um, as you teach them Greek and Hebrew and church history. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. You know, when you go to Dairy Queen, when you go to McDonald's. When you go to the Rangers game. When you, see, if they're with you, life is full of teachable moments, and they're going to watch you. And if the Word of God is on your heart, and you carry it with you, not just in a Bible, but if it's in your life, they're going to watch how you react to situations, and they're going to learn godliness from you. Isn't that good? And you can have, by God's grace... You can have a great dynasty. I'm almost done. But not quite. <laughs> Robbie Lowe has written an article. I, 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 what I want to do here is I want to I drive a Mack truck through this thing so you can't miss it tonight. 
about the importance of your fathering and grandfathering. Okay? Uh, Robbie says, uh, this article is called The Truth About Men in the Church. Not many men will have whiled away the long winter evenings by reading a work called The Demographic Characteristics of the Linguistic and Religious Groups in Switzerland by Werner Hogg and Philip Warner of the Federal Statistical Office. It appears in, it appears in Volume 2 of Population Studies Number 31, a book titled The Demographic Characteristics of National Minorities in Certain European States. Uh, all this information, he says, is readily obtainable because Switzerland always asks a person's religion, language, and nationality on its census. Now for the interesting bit. In 1994, the Swiss carried out an extra survey that the researchers uh, in Europe were happy to record. Now, this is really wild. The question was asked to determine whether a person's religion carried to the next generation. And if so, why, or if not, why not? The result is dynamite. There is one critical factor. It is overwhelming, and it is this. It is the religious practice of the father of the family that above all determines the future attendance at or absent from church in the lives of his children. Now, we, we could pick this apart. But this was a secular study. So they weren't asking guys, is your kid following Christ and living as a disciple of Christ? So they broke it up into being a regular church attender or an irregular church attender. Okay? So let's cut them some slack. But you'll see the point. Now catch this. If the father is irregular in church attendance and the mother regular, only 3% of the children will subsequently become regular themselves. But if both father and mother attend regularly, 33% of their children will end up as regular churchgoers and 41% will end up attending irregularly. In other words, when the father isn't regular, there is a, there is a loss of 59% who will become irregular. And they got all these statistics. Now, we can pick it. We can pick it being a regular church attender and all, but I think you see the heart of this. The father's role is critical. The father's role is significant. It says here in Deuteronomy to the men, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Guys, God's looking for men like that. Um, things were so bad in Israel. They were so bad that Elijah got depressed, and he thought he was the only guy left. And God said to him, I've got 7,000 in Israel, right under the noses of Ahab and Jezebel, who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. I want to be counted in those 7,000. Don't you? Some of you guys, you've raised your kids to know Christ. They're away from Christ. Can I say this to you? The last chapter of that story hasn't been written yet. You say, well, Steve, I prayed. Well, then you keep praying. I fasted. You keep fasting. You keep beseeching the throne of God. And I would pray this. If you've got a prodigal, Lord, you do whatever you have to do to save their souls. 
collapse their dreams, collapse their lives, collapse their careers, collapse their health, collapse their prosperity as everything collapsed around Samson. But in his dying breath, he honored you. That's a tough thing to pray. But God is a good God. You say, but they're so stubborn and they're so hard. Then pray that God will bulldoze their free will, which isn't free. It's enslaved to sin. They have no hope of coming to Christ unless he draws them and pulls them. So beseech the throne of God and ask him to do a great and mighty work that would bring another generation to fear the Lord so that the word of God would be fulfilled in your family. God loves to answer prayers like that. When my great-grandmother died, she was in her late 90s. Thirteen kids, eight boys, two of them died in the great influenza epidemic of 1918. She had six sons in their 60s and 70s who were hell raisers, hard-drinking guys that had no interest in God, that would mock God. She died without seeing any of them come to Christ. After she died, one by one, they came to Christ, and they were fervent. And they died with their boots on. Isn't that great? God's a great God. Lord, we're all building a dynasty, and it's not dependent on us. We've all made mistakes. We've all made errors. We've all screwed up with our kids. That's why we need you in our lives. Uh, Lord, we, uh, there are no perfect fathers in here. There's just one perfect Heavenly Father. Lord, we, might at, we, we, we would ask you with all of our heart that you would do a great work in the lives of our children and our grandchildren. We pray for the children who are yet to be born. And we pray for their children that you might bring them in our legacy and in our generational line to know you and to love you and to walk with you and to build their lives on the foundation of the Word of God. We pray that you would bless us in that way. Uh, with John, we say, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. We, we read of this dynasty, and it's so sad, and it's so unnecessary. How foolish, what a wasted life this Ahab was, and he passed on foolishness to his children. May you protect us from that. May we be men who, who wallow and bathe in your word. And as they're with us, may they see it come out. And when sin comes out, may they see we are quick to confess and to repent and to acknowledge we were wrong and to receive your mercy and grace. Bless us, Lord, for generations, we pray in Jesus' name.